Good afternoon, uh, everybody. Welcome to this Reach Markets Insider webcast. My name is Warwick Lace. I'm the Head of Investor Relations at Reach Markets, and uh, I'll be facilitating the session for you today. Today's Insider webcast is a Meet the Funds Manager session, where every fortnight we meet a leading small and micro-cap manager. The structure of the session is to get the manager's view on markets, highlight emerging trends and sectors uh, that they are most excited in, and then hear about some of their top stock picks. Uh, what REACH markets then do is invite those companies that the fundies have picked uh, to come along and present at our fortnightly Meet the CEO session. Uh, that way you can hear from professional investors about why they like a company and are, and are invested in the company, and also hear directly from the leaders of those companies themselves. Uh, everything we do here at REACH markets is geared towards giving you a seat at the investment table, hearing directly from fund managers and giving you direct access to companies you are interested in. Uh, it's all about helping active investors get access to companies, information, and deal flow. So the common theme uh, across all our webcasts is it gives you the audience the opportunity to ask questions of our guests. Uh, we feel it's an important and interactive way for investors and uh, other market participants to engage and ultimately make uh, decisions about their investment ideas. Any information contained in today's presentation is general nature and does not consider your personal circumstances. You need to consider for yourself whether it is appropriate for you. Right, let's uh, rip right into it. Today we're very pleased to be joined by Joel Fleming from Yarrow Capital. Uh, Joel is the portfolio manager of the UBS Microcap Fund and leads Yarrow Capital Management's Microcap Equity Strategy. Um, some of you might be wondering why the fund is called UBS uh, while Joel works for Yarrow Capital. Uh, Joel will explain that simple but uh, important relationship shortly. Uh, the reason Joel has been invited today is because his name keeps on popping up when we are discussing top performing small and micro cap fund managers with our network. Um, he has a long and consistent track record of outperforming the market and has managed this micro cap fund since inception. So, Joel, uh, thanks very much uh, for your time today. Uh, welcome to the session. Thank you very much, Warwick, and um, thank you to everyone who's taken the time to listen today. It's greatly appreciated. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I'll, um, I'll just quickly tick over to the next slide and give you controls of the presentation. Give me one second while I... If you wiggle your mouse, Joel, you should, um, you, you should take control. Perfect. Um, yep. so Thanks again. Um, I guess the, the only um, better thing than one disclaimer is having to um, have two disclaimers. So, um, of course, always important in these presentations is just to take note of these, um, these disclaimers. Um, as Warwick said, um, I was the um, founding portfolio manager of the UBS Microcap Fund, which we launched in 2014. Um, UBS made the decision to outsource the running of their domestic equity funds in late 2018, and I was given the opportunity to come across to Yarra Capital and um, you know, continue to manage this product that I've managed since inception and, um, and really continue to try and take full advantage of all the opportunities that exist in you know, what is the most interesting and opportunistic sector of the market. Um, so just for context, um, Yarra Capital has a, a long history in Australia being the former Goldman Sachs Asset Management. So a long heritage, um, the business resulted as a, a management buyout approximately four years ago, 
Um, and, and UBS made the decision that Yarra Capital was a fantastic place for their domestic equity strategies to continue to be managed in this market. And I had the privilege to be able to, to join this organisation. Um, and even though in our investment process, the way that we view the world has remained the same, the synergies with the way that the Yarra team think about the, um, the environment, the um, size of the team and the opportunities this provides has really enhanced our ability to take the um, to take full advantage of this um, particular area of the market. So, if we have a, a think about the microcap sector in place, um, we've been doing this for in excess of six years now, and we've we've outperformed the market during that time. Um, we're a dedicated team up here in Sydney, focused on the microcap space. But one of the great things about the Yarra Capital business is its investment in its investment team. We have 13 equity analysts, fixed income team, and Tim Tui as head of macro and strategy, which we can really leverage to be able to try and find the best opportunities in this space. And we think that's a real differentiating factor um, between many other microcap managers um, and being really able to leverage this large um, organisation really focused on detailed due diligence, long-term thinking, and picking those, those businesses that will go on to become much bigger, much more sustainable, and important parts of the economy. Um, the way we think about the world is we are fundamental investors. Everything is bottom-up, research-driven, and it's about the long-term. And we think this is really well-suited to microcap investing. We can talk a lot about those great companies that have migrated their way through from being very small to incredibly large, even to the top 100. And investors have really benefited from that. Many other people employ a higher turnover, a shorter term focus, which works well um, for their investment styles. But we really seek to focus on picking those next generation of long-term winners in the market. When we look at the way that we do things, we want to be repeatable, and we, we don't want to focus too much on a particular style that means that we, you know, that if the market's in a particular direction or there's a particular focus that we seek to, to miss out on those opportunities. So we think focusing on a very good management team, having a good balance sheet, generating free cash flow, reinvesting in itself over the long term, as they say, what can be achieved in, in the short term is often overestimated, what can be achieved in the long term can be underestimated. And that focus on cash flow is really key to the way we think about things. Not only do we have a big team that does really detailed industry research, moves up and down the market cap spectrum, but we have a significant amount of one-on-one -on -one meetings, meetings with experts, customers, suppliers. And that's where you really make a difference in this, in this space. The management teams tend to be readily available to you, um, the opportunity to compare notes with suppliers, former employees, all of those things really help to build out a picture um, in a space where usually people are very passionate about what they do. Uh, they often own a lot of equity in the business and of course they think it's the best investment going around. Being able to do that detailed due diligence really make a difference, helps you to sort out something that perhaps um, more short term, more, more hot air, less able to execute on their business plan, as opposed to someone who's building a robust business and in time the market will, um, will recognise that. The other thing that's important is our portfolio construction process. 
risk and return are, are, are key, obviously. Um, and just because you think the stock has the most upside, um, you have to be careful about your weightings because particularly in developing businesses, we're taking different levels of risk. Um, and that's really important to understand because you know, the downside protection is absolutely key. So getting, getting some very right is helpful, but it's those, those ones that don't go so well that cause some really you know, damage to your portfolio. Um, and focusing on that risk is, is really important. As I said, we've got a really big team. Uh, Yarra is a funds management focused business um, and everyone who works there is about generating ideas and discussion that lead to the best possible outcomes across our range of portfolios across the, across the space. And as I said, having someone like Tim Tui in terms of macro and strategy, the fixed income team to be able to comment on certain aspects of the investment case is really additive to, to making good long-term decisions and picking out those businesses that will go on to um, outperform over the long term. And ESG is becoming an increasingly important part of the market, as we know. Um, and with small and emerging companies, there's, there's not really a great excuse given, you know, they're often recently formed, starting off as you mean to go forward. Best practice, um, looking to build something that's sustainable and in time, there's not a cost impost or a regulatory impost uh, put on you because you're not operating at that best practice. And we find that those companies that have that framework who think about these issues is really helpful in finding out those businesses that will go on to become important contributors in the, in the future. Is there anything you screen out sort of right off the bat, Joel? So, look, not, not anything... Um, plain vanilla. It's not like that we won't look at a gaming stock or an alcohol stock or a, um, you know, it, it, there's no particular rules like that. But we do have thresholds, I think, where there are certain areas that, you know, you, you would think greatly about before going down that path. Because our investment universe is so large and it captures every part of the Australian economy, um, we want to focus on those businesses that are really um, blazing a trail and creating a real market opportunity for themselves. Um, and, you know, that ESG factor is becoming increasingly prevalent and will become an increasing part of, you know, the, the performance of equities going forward, I think. Yeah. Um, so maybe a little bit about me. I've been um, in the market since the year 2000. Um, I started as an analyst at Patterson's in Perth and um, that was a great grounding in terms of my love for finding very small businesses that were off the radar and seeing them turn into something substantial, um, you know, really relevant to the market that they operate in. You know, meeting Monodelphus at a $40 million market cap and seeing that become a preeminent supplier to the iron ore industry, top 100 business. I mean, that's, that's what you try and do as, as an investor. The flip side of that, it also taught me some cynical lessons about, you know, that not everyone who walked through the door with a cure for cancer actually had a product that worked and would actually make any money out of it. And I mean, that's the joy of microcaps, that everyone has a plan, everyone's building out an idea. Um, and that really helped to, to ground my um, love of this particular part of the market. Um, I then worked for a number of fund managers, always as a small microcap um, roving analyst and portfolio manager. And I think in time, um, I felt that a lot of the small caps were becoming increasingly well followed, 
we're seeing 13 and 14 pieces of research out and you know that ability to go and see a company that no one had walked through the door for six or 12 months um, really, I guess, galvanised my, um, my passion for the microcap space. So um, it's been a, a fantastic journey on that time and I think that um, you know, I, I can't imagine operating in any other part of the, um, of the market. So when we think about our investment approach, um, let's start with why this is compelling. And there's a huge amount of names out there. And we can talk about the IPO pipeline, but you know, there's, there's a lot happening and it's very dynamic. Companies fail, companies succeed, people change their business models, uh, there's backdoor listings, IPOs. It's, it's a really interesting space. You're not dealing with the same 90, 100 companies year in, year out. They tend to be faster growing, or the successful businesses tend to be faster growing. And that's really interesting in a world where growth can be hard to find. And one of the great things that I've always liked is being less macro dependent. So not reliant on what's happening with Australian GDP or what's happening in offshore markets. This is about businesses that are growing because they have a better product, a better solution. Customers are flocking to them. Their business model is differentiated. And so the ability to, to grow outside of what's happening more broadly because you're delivering on a successful idea is just really compelling. And the other thing is about pure sector exposure. So you can look at the big telco companies globally and you know they all had some data center businesses, for instance. But something like NextDC offered you a pure play exposure to that data center thematic. And you combine that with the increasing cloud um, and all these other you know, major disruptive events we've seen over the last few years, that ability to find a very pure business exposure is another compelling element of the microcap space. We all know about there's not as many investors, there's, there's not as many brokers providing research, the media interest is lower, um, and capacity is a real issue in this space. You know, you can't run a billion dollars in microcap successfully without either running a huge portfolio of stocks or a much larger market cap than, than I guess um, you start out at. Um, and the opportunity, this is the nursery for future winners, this is where the great businesses of tomorrow are going to be found and the, the ability to generate long-term capital growth is compelling um, and you know that's really exciting to both see a business become very successful, much more sustainable, durable in what it does but also be driving the benefit for people that trust you to look after their funds is a, is a really exciting element of, of investing in this area. Um, this is a quick chart. I think we all know these um, statistics, but you know, talking about the top 100, heavily concentrated, as we move down, there is just so many names, so many industries, and the spread of market cap opportunities that move all the time are just significant. Um, and as we said, this is where those fast-growing companies that are going to go on to make a, a name for themselves and be a, a really important part of the economy and what they do, we think this is the best place to start looking for them. So in terms of our approach, I want to clearly leave um, people on the call today. We're long-term investors. You know, the market over the last 12, 18 months in particular has become incredibly short-term focused. It's about the next data point, the next result release, the next drill hole, 
and, and there's a lot of liquidity that comes in around these events. Um, and, and many investors are very good at that investment style. But we take a longer term approach. We're focused on those long term cyclical and structural changes that occur. And we want to run a low turnover fund. So we want to buy a stock that we're holding for longer than 12 months. It you know, generates huge capital gains. You get the taxation benefit of that and your investors go on a really successful journey because you've done all that work up front. Um, and that, that's the way that we view the world. Now, to do that successfully, it's about a fundamental approach. And in microcaps, it's all about analysing industries, going really detailed into the company, the product and the management team, and trying to work out if you're paying a reasonable price for a team that is backable with a sensible plan and hopefully with a, a tailwind or something behind it that's going to mean that you know, their ability to scale and, and grow um, is being underestimated by the market. And that's, that's really where we spend our time, trying to understand those, the opportunity and the risks around the business and how we see it playing out over the next couple of years. Um, as I said, we like to be balanced not all about growth, it's not a single bet on the IT space or biotech or healthcare. We try and look across the spectrum, find some great value businesses that will grow, um, find some great growth businesses and just have balance across the portfolio, as I said. So when markets turn, you don't sit there and say, gee, my style was out of favour. The investment universe is so large, you know, we should be able to find winning business models within that, that big area. Um, we have fantastic macro input into our process. Um, it's really helpful in thinking about um, the way things are, uh, are going, um, but our strongest research is bottom-up, understanding of the company, understanding of the industry, and that's where we spend the time. We spoke before about ESG. It's a growing and an important factor in investing um, and finding a, a great company that's doing the right thing and is set up to continue to perform and, and best practice in terms of its environmental, social and governance is key. And we try, discipline is so important. Preserving capital is paramount. Um, there are a lot of risks. People always focus up on, on the upside in microcaps, but these are developing business models. A regulatory change, competitive response, things can overnight destroy what looks to be a, a really good um, you know, opportunity. And even though, you know, People talk about COVID being a factor that you know, no one saw coming. That has certainly impacted significantly on many businesses and, and many businesses won't return from, from that event. So that's absolutely key to the way in our thinking. Um, this is just all about the fact that we're out on the ground and we're trying to learn and understand and make sure that once we've built an investment case and a position that the stock continues to generate and hit its milestones and move towards its goals. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, and it's important to make sure that you're constantly testing your thesis, keeping an eye on the valuation and, and, and how acceptable that is and what's being priced in. But at the end of the day, it's all about people on the ground meeting and trying to build out that understanding um, across as many aspects as you can. Um, I spoke before about our balanced approach. So, we can talk about some, some high growth businesses like RPM Global, Smart Pay Holdings, E-Road, but 
but then equally we can look at businesses that appear to have a low PE ratio, reasonable dividend yield, yet we think that there's an underlying thematic that means that the next couple of years look really promising. So that's really important in terms of having a balanced approach. And we also think about having a balanced approach in terms of our timing. You certainly want some stocks that have catalysts that are inflection points and are about to move into a, a part of the market where people are really taking notice. You know, when you see the quarterly results, the half yearlies, people are really seeing some, some positive action there and starting to think differently about what that business model is capable of doing in the future. You have some medium term ideas, which you're backing the management, you know that they're making investments today which are going to drive a fantastic outcome in the future, but perhaps it's a little further than the market's horizon at this stage. And then you have a portion of the portfolio that you think that all the ingredients are there but the catalyst or the inflection points probably further away than you can currently see, but you've done the work to understand the fact that these businesses you think will deliver in time. So if we look at the Australian economy and, and thinking about some of the issues at the moment, um, clearly Australia has outperformed global peers both in terms of our health and economic outcomes. Um, you know, if you think about the, the depth of late March and what that may look like, I mean, I think lots of people on reflection would just, you know, can't understate the success Australia has had and, you know, how well managed and how lucky we've been um, given that. Um, if we think at a high level, no one is taking overseas trips in the short, probably medium term. Um, and domestic growth is likely to be a much stronger demand driver than global growth in the short term. And lots of microcap companies are more focused on that domestic consumption outlook. They're predominantly Aussie-based businesses, and if you look at the statistics about uh, home building and renovations, if you think about um, the money that's being spent in domestic circles, that's a pretty powerful short-term driver um, and, and pretty good place to be in terms of those domestically focused stocks. Um, again, the A caught a lot of people by surprise. Generally, a higher A is better for these businesses. They're importing product. Um, they have choice whether to continue to reinvest or they can drive their margins higher. And that's, a, again, a pretty positive dynamic that sits behind um, you know, the, the shorter term outlook for the microcap space. And then we've got these big structural shifts occurring. Um, you know, I always love the case study of REA and, and thinking about people used to go to the classifieds and then all of a sudden REA created this business where, you know, that's where people advertised, that's where people went to look and they created this amazing business from some of those structural shifts to uh, online and, and what that's meant. We think about digitisation, everyone having to work from home, um, e-commerce, the move away from cash. There's lots of things that we think are going to change as a result of this. Some of these trends have been ongoing for quite some time, but they certainly sped up over the last 12 months in particular. And that's going to be an enduring feature. The demand for technology, the demand for efficiency, um, there's going to be a lot of structural tailwinds that um, create opportunities for microcap companies. Um, when we think about the environment right now, um, Globally, we think the pace of recovery and how that looks remains uncertain. 
and earnings outlook is opaque. So going into reporting season uh, here in Australia, um, most companies looking to report pretty strong growth. Um, the outlook into the second half will be key. And then more importantly, in 12 months time, what do those comps look like in terms of are people continuing to spend? What's unemployment done? So there's some uncertainty there. Um, we talked about the structural shifts. Small, nimble businesses, that's the opportunity for them to take advantage of that. And when we think about that uncertain outlook, it really does help to have that balanced portfolio. And again, businesses that are, you know, short term you can really see some upside for them as opposed to those longer term drivers that you hope to, to generate great returns for you over the next couple of years. Um, as I said, this is not about investing in certain sectors, it's about undiscovered businesses that will turn into something that grows their market share, creates a new market for themselves and finding those real you know, gems that exist in here outside of what's going on in the broader macro. And it's about sustainable businesses. You know, a good half or a, a good announcement, it's about how does that turn into generating free cash flow, improving your competitive position, um, and, and really taking that multi-year approach to growth where, you know, if the market is even looking at this business, it's a great surprise to them, you know, their economic returns they're generating over the medium term. Um, and, and we're looking to continue to back companies from an early stage. I mean, that's why you're a microcap investor, to find the next ProMedicus, the next DC. Um, you know, to be early, yes, management has to deliver. Um, they have to, to, to go through those growing pains, but creating a really strong position themselves in the market. Um, we talked before. Just a quick question coming in there. I was, I was interested in the, the portfolio effect and how much alpha is is being added via the portfolio and the way you manage that portfolio. I guess many of our investors are self you know self driven and uh, you know get you know probably seven oh eights and get presented with some great opportunities. But uh, yeah, yeah, how how much on a risk reward basis is is being added because you're managing the portfolio as a whole? Well, it's, it's interesting. If you if you bet on one stock and it goes well, it's a fantastic outcome. And if it doesn't, but it's about diversity, right? The whole thing about a portfolio is we don't have perfect knowledge. We we think everything in there will go on to be successful and deliver returns for our clients. And, and the range of those returns are, um, you know, very variable from something that you think that has fifty percent upside through to something that you think could be you know, 40 or 50 times your money. So it, it's interesting. This is what we do for a living. Um, and we have access to the management team. We speak to, you know, people to really try to write, write out that understanding. Um, and I think this is a way of getting exposure to the sector in a, a lower volatility way um, than, you know, swinging for the, for the bleachers, if you will, and, and, and things going very right or very wrong. You know, in this space, market sentiment's interesting. You know, the IPO window can be open and roaring, and then it can shut very quickly, and people can be disappointed with the outcome. So it's about that diversified approach, um, and 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 trying to create, take out some of the volatility, I guess, from being um, more single stock focused. Gotcha. 
Um, so I thought I'd just touch on a couple of stocks um, very briefly, I'm conscious of time, but um, Alliance Aviation, um, people probably think that you'd be mad to be thinking about anything to do with the aviation sector. Um, if you have a look at you know, aerial photos of um, many airports around the world, there are significant numbers of aircraft parked up. You look at the traffic numbers and things, but this is a really unique example of a potential structural shift in the market. So in short, Alliance Aviation runs fly-in, fly-out services for mining customers. And that was part of the solution that allowed you know, many mining companies continuing to operate through um, the COVID period by you know, running safely, having the protocols in place and managing that very you know, difficult period. They take no passenger risk, they take no fuel risk. Their job is to get people safely and on time to site. Um, we think that there are a large number of new projects coming on that will require um, fly-in, fly-out services. So there's a natural buoyancy happening in that market. But previously, Australia being a very large country and very remote um, sites, and not everyone lives next door to the place that they work. And that fly-in, fly-out aspect is a, is a really key element. Previously, people used to jump on a Qantas or a Virgin flight um, to, to get to work. And with the domestic aviation network pretty much coming to a standstill, um, they had to look for other solutions. And you know, Alliance have great pedigree in this sector. Virgin are coming back, but in a, a much more focused mainline basis. And the opportunity for Alliance to take a significant market share with these key customers on long-term contracts, no fuel risk, no passenger risk, is substantial. So we see a really big structural shift occurring in this market. Um, there's been no better time to fly some, some new aircraft to your fleet over the last 12, six, six months in particular, and they've taken advantage of that and purchased you know, significant capacity to deploy. Um, management are very good allocated the capital, and we see this stock as being, um, people are underestimating that potential long-term upside. And it's a classic case, I think, when people are fearful. Um, you know, they've bought new aircraft, they've bought lots of spares, they've bought some maintenance um, opportunities. Significant number of pilots um, are available and are not working and looking for, for, um, for new roles. And we just think that, um, you know, that, that opportunity for them is significant. They've purchased the kit, they've set themselves up, and we wouldn't be surprised over the next 12 to 18 months to see some pretty impressive contracts come through, which really underwrite, um, you know, the long-term profitability of this business. So that's one that we think is really interesting. Um, the next one I'd call out is, um, is E-Road. Now, this was a New Zealand-listed business that recently dual-listed on the ASX. Um, and, and what's interesting about E-Road... Yeah. Sorry, we were just on, um, on the wrong slide there. Um, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing Alliance at the moment, so I think the next slide is E-Road. There we go. Thanks. Um, so what's interesting about E-Road, it was a New Zealand-listed business, and they've recently dual-listed on the ASX. And as a starting point, um, the way that investors in New Zealand looked at tech valuations was different to 
um, the way that Australian investors do, and there's obviously a, a larger pool of investors in this market. Um, this business is technology-led, and their, their goal is to make roads more productive and safer. And when we think about um, big trends out there, the requirement of people to be have greater compliance, be safer, use data to be more efficient and optimised um, is a really interesting tailwind. And people are looking for technology solutions to do this. Um, when you think about roads, who pays to maintain and how people use it, that's a really interesting problem. People have used fuel taxes. What does that mean in terms of the, the shift to EVs? Um, the idea of driver safety and making sure that drivers are fatigued and causing accidents and the impact on insurance. Um, and, and the idea that vehicles are fit for service, that you know the, the, the vehicle is roadworthy and safe, and all these things are really important drivers um, in the market in terms of big themes happening. Um, E-Road has a really strong position in New Zealand, and it has a profitable and growing business in the US, and Australia is at its very early stage, but these trends around compliance, health and safety, are only going to continue to get stronger. And they have a really interesting product um, that has been tested and, and provided credibility through what they've done in New Zealand. And we just see the opportunity um, for them to become a significant player in this global telematics market um, as, being, as being something that is really undervalued by the market at this point. And um, they've had their quarterly out today and people were a little bit disappointed by the, the progress in the US, but we understand with COVID that it's been a different, difficult operating environment. But in, as an example of our due diligence, we meet with multiple layers of management. You know, it's not just the CEO and the CFO. We try and speak to people in sales. We try and speak to people in technology. Um, we spoke to key industry opinion leaders to try and understand the trends in the market, how the US might differ from New Zealand, former staff, competitors, and customers, and really trying to build out that picture. Um, but we think it's, a, it's an undervalued business. We think the, the runway for the growth is significant. They're constantly investing in um, innovation and new products, which is really important to make them relevant and stay relevant and ahead of the field. Um, and it's just a, a business that we see over the next three or five years becoming you know, much larger than it is today. So oh, just a question that's come in on uh, from Nigel, just on the, that management sort of access and interaction. Um, what sort of uh, frequency are you uh, typically looking to achieve in terms of uh, interaction? And then, how do you sort of how do you keep the long term view, um, even if you're meeting with them on a sort of a quarterly basis, for example? Yeah. So I think with a company like Eroad, we'd be trying to meet with senior management at least quarterly, um, and and. You know, that's very important, but once you've built a relationship with a company and you understand their long-term strategic goals and what they're trying to achieve, um, like I'll give you an example, but something like E-Road, as it's developing, we might try and speak to the management team four times a year. Um, but in COVID, we were speaking to people every second week. As, as things change dramatically, New Zealand's closed, what does that mean for your business? Victoria's closed, what does that mean for your business? So that um, that frequency increased greatly, but we try and build a, an understanding and a relationship with the management team. 
but, but the real work is done in terms of speaking to that competitor that's trying to take share from them, from that customer and saying, you know, is this the kind of product that you would look to, you know, continue to support and, you know, would you buy multiple things from this vendor? So um, there are people out there that have much closer frequent contacts with management, but we try and align our long-term view with not getting too caught up with the noise. So if there's a poor quarter or a, a you know a poor outcome, we want to understand the reasons behind that. Um, but if it still fits within our, our longer term thinking, uh, then we will you know continue to to kind of progress our our position on the stock. There are always times where stocks get too cheap and too expensive, and we'll be trimming and, and adding along the way. Um, but yeah, meeting with management is important, but it's it's that third-party verification where I think the real difference is made. Yeah, gotcha. And just lastly, um, Pacific Smiles. I mean, no one looks forward to going to the dentist, I can imagine. Um, but again, in, in, in a disruptive period, the market thought no, nothing's ever going to be the same again. There's lockdowns, people have fixed costs. Um, this is a business that provides a dental centre for a dentist to come in, work, and then just leave, and, and that kind of model suits a lot of a lot of people out there that don't want to run their own business. Um, it's really importantly, it's a rollout model, not a roll up. So you're not financial engineering by buying a private business on four times, and you know you're trading at eight and getting a, an uplift there. Um, this is about a business that's trying to grow out its footprint, take market share, and become you know a, a preeminent dental provider in Australia. Um, over the long term, it has been an underperformer, but a new, the new MD has really driven the operating model, focused on costs, and we're starting to see the tangible results of that. So thinking about procurement, thinking about how to scale your large footprint is really starting to, to offer benefits to people. With COVID, there's going to be increasing compliance required. There's going to be things that need to be done that there's much more of an impost on a smaller business. And we think that there will be an opportunity for share to be taken in this um, in this market. And there's a, a significant long-term opportunity for them to scale the brand, you know, work more closely with health funds like they're doing in Perth, to become you know a supplier of choice. Um, and so it's a really interesting business. You know, the drivers of um, of it are not. You know, we all have to go to the dentist. Um, you know, the 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 ability for them to to grow their revenues and deliver a, a great outcome in terms of cash flow and profitability to reinvest and, and really build out this network are significant. And there's been some, a lot of sector M&A activity and over time the relationships with health funds and how the industry is set up um, you know, will be really interesting to watch but we think that this is a, a very well positioned business against that backdrop. When you when you look at some of those graphs, Joel, that you've you've just gone through, there's obviously, you know, companies that in 2020 have you know have been a gone a multi bag to uh, <laughs> to use a, a term we all like to reference. How much sort of conviction do you need to get in on at that stage? You know, when when you've already seen a company re-rate, you know, two or three times. Yeah, and yeah. You know, what's the you know at, at what stage do you think oh we've the, the easy money's been made we'll look elsewhere? Yeah, we're we're about you know you 
to be honest, you really at the start try and take out the valuation from your thinking. Because looking at a share price, you know, can anchor, I've missed it and, and things like that. But I think, you know, having seen a lot of companies over the years, go in and try and work out, is this a business that you think has great potential? And are these people backable? And when I think about the things that are driving this business, does that make sense to me? Um, and so with an IPO, often we don't get that ability to, to kind of see how the, the company operates and things. So missing you know, the first 50, 100%, we're very happy to do that because we see it as being de-risked or we've picked up on something that people haven't yet you know, realised and things like that. So um, you know, share prices move around, particularly at the moment, significantly. Um, we try and find great businesses run by great people and then work out whether we can think that the valuation gives us plenty of room for upside. But one of the great things about, we invest in $250 million market cap and below companies. So, um, you know, that's, a, a, that's, that's your gate, I guess. Um, and, and we've seen that plenty of businesses go from 200 to a billion dollars. They, they, they exist, they happen. Um, and, and we are privileged to be in a position where we are looking at them earlier than, than a lot of other people. Um, so, so that gives us a lot of confidence that um, you know thing, things can skyrocket and, and move down. But um, if we've done the work and we know we, we think we know where it's going, then that's really um, that's really important. So, look just to um, just to kind of sum up in Australia right now. Yes, the market's had a great six-month period, but improving confidence, domestic consumption. Anything with improving competitive positioning, you know, there's a lot of positives that sit behind that for, for many companies. Um, we think infrastructure and spending on resources as they, you know, add uh, processing capacity, start new projects, uh, expand. There's a lot of latent value there from some of the service providers here in Australia. Um, and you know, with a lot of these companies, they're trading like at the top of the cycle. So we see both an earning surprise to the positive and a re-rating of their, you know, of their valuation in terms of multiple um, as this, you know, over a number of years um, starts to, to, you know, generate, you know, impressive outcomes for these companies. The IPO window, as we discussed before the, the webinar, is well and truly open. Um, and, you know, most IPOs happen in the microcap space. It's very rare to see a new X or a, a very large company. Um, and that creates huge amounts of opportunity for people to, you know, to get behind something that will, you know, go on the journey through the index. Um, and again, pace of capital raising. It's turned from I just need to uh, bulletproof my balance sheet so I can get through the unknown to, you know what, I'm feeling pretty confident. I think I can make acquisitions. I think there's opportunities to invest. Um, and, and that's a really powerful driver for us. And, you know, putting money to work today where you're seeing the outcome in three years' time, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a really important driver of return. So um, there's always opportunities here. There's always great undiscovered companies. And, you know, at the, in the, the short to medium term, that backdrop looks pretty positive to us. We try and take long-term views. We do a lot of work, do a lot of checking, a lot of due diligence to find those companies that are going to, you know, become the market leaders of tomorrow, right? 
Um, we have the privilege of looking at this huge investable universe um, and that's why we get up in the morning, to meet interesting people, to see changes in markets and see the opportunities for companies to turn into something that generates long-term capital growth for our investors. Um, we try it's consistent and it's repeatable and we think it works through the cycle um, and you know our goal is to be not ride the volatility of sectors going from hot to not and, and things like that, but just provide a consistent long-term return and be part of that journey with that next generation of successful companies that go out into the market, they grow, they pay more taxes, they employ people and they become real success stories that are sustainable, durable um, and our investors get to go along with that journey. Thanks very much, Joel. It's been, uh, it's been very interesting. A couple of questions uh, that we can uh, uh, work through quickly. Uh, Ari, is a, is a simple one. I can answer yes, there will be a, a replay. We'll email that around uh, after the presentation, Ari. Uh, Tim has a question just on liquidity. How important uh, is liquidity to you in looking, obviously when you're entering a company, I, I guess it's important, but also um, on the exit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's the one obvious thing you're trading off in this space. And, you know, it, it's easy to get in to things and often, particularly at the smaller end, it's very illiquid. But part of being successful in microcaps is in time that turns into something that is more liquid because it's successful and people are interested. Um, and that's that natural bias that happens as they migrate up indexes and you have passive funds buying and, you know, index trackers. That's a really um, that's a really powerful driver. Um, we try and have a balance of liquidity. We do think about liquidity as an overall because the last thing you want to do in a crisis is have to gate your fund. You know, investors should feel that they can take advantage of a daily unit price. The liquidity sits in the fund, and you're able to deal with any um, issues that occur with that. And that's something that you know, if you think about what really worries you, that liquidity component is you know, right up there. Yeah. Question in from uh, Ellen. I, I guess we've spoken quite a lot about what you what you like and what you've been uh, buying. Uh, what have you been uh, looking to get out of recently? Um, I guess a really good example is we had great success with Temple and Webster, the online furniture player, um, but but we're valuation sensitive, and when it reached our our valuation, we really cut. The, the position aggressively. We think it's great business. We think it's ability to go on and become a market leader. Um, you know that we have high confidence in that. Um, but equally, given the rapid growth rates it's experienced, um, as that slows, as it will, some of that hot money will probably feel a little bit different about their investment. Now, if we we keep a toehold there, so when it gets to a more attractive entry, we'll look to to enter. Um, but that's probably a good example of trying to show discipline on the sell side um, because, you know, things do get overvalued and undervalued all the time. Yeah. Uh, another question on that uh, sell side, I guess, is from Paul, and he's wanting to know uh, when the companies uh, sort of break out of that micro cap um, uh, cap that you put on on the fund. What's uh, what's the strategy for for getting out? Do you w will you continue to to write it up, or is there a limit where you just um, pull the plug? 
Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really great question and, and twofold. If we've done all the work and we think we have some advantage over other people on where this company can go, why should our investors not benefit from that? Um, and NextDC is a great example, right? We, we bought that sub $250 million market cap. It's in the ASX 100 now and it's a much smaller position than it ever was. Um, but those enduring trends that are happening there mean you know, that that's a business that's going to continue to benefit and it's strategic in its positioning. Um, it offers long-term annuity style cash flows. There is a lot to like about that. Um, but that is a very rare example. I think where we think that we have better ideas or we think in the case of you know, a Temple and Webster, the valuation hits a point where our investors have captured what we think is appropriate, we'll look to sell. But I would hate as an investor in this fund, and this is the only place I get my microcap exposure, is to force to sell something at the ASX 300 and then, you know, knowing that it's going to continue to perform well, to leave that on the table if I don't have other areas. So because we do so much work up front, it's about um, in those rare examples, continuing to to benefit from all that hard work you've done. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in your presentation that, you know, some of the challenges that small cap companies face, uh, you know, just less research, less media attention, um, just less visibility, I guess, across the, uh, across the investor uh, universe. How important is it that a a company and a management team sort of work out how to market themselves and uh, and reach and be sort of accessible to to investors. Yeah, look, it's really. I mean, the world is about marketing these days, isn't it? You know, like you you look at people advertising their business on Instagram now. If you, if you don't have a website, if you don't have um, you know that reach to the market, you you know you're really going to struggle. Um, but it's, it, it's two-edged. Like, if I see someone who's presenting at a conference every three days, I wonder how their business is being run and do they actually need a CEO if someone is just a marketing piece for the company. So it's a really fine line. But I think going out and telling your story and messaging it in a way where you understand the people that you're talking to um, it is really key, and even as a, as a fund manager, you know, your job is to try and clearly articulate to people how you do things, what they're buying, and, 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 and the way that people go about it. But with companies, you know, we get our ideas from lots of places, we run lots of screens. Not everyone is a really sharp presenter, but they've got an amazing business in there. And, and sometimes that's, that's part of the, um, you know, part of the issue. It's about assessing someone's competence and ability and luck and all of those kinds of things um, is really key. But, you know, like anything, someone who has great messaging, clearly articulates and doesn't oversell a business, um, that's really helpful to an investment case. Yeah. Maybe just the last one uh, in from uh, John, just talking about the uh, the IPO. Uh, you've already mentioned the IPOs. The, there was a rush of them in 2020, and uh, plenty uh, plenty in the pipeline for 2021. What's your um, approach generally to IPOs? Are you looking to participate um, in as many as possible and just get uh, get some uplift, or uh, is it a very much more sort of 
uh, targeted and selected uh, approach? Yeah, much much more selective approach. So so we would literally have invested in a handful over over a couple of years. And again, you know, I think we have a, a big filter. You know, a, a filter that means that we really want to do the work. And one of the interesting things that's happened because the market is so buoyant, you know, you might get a group presentation at lunchtime and the book closes on a lot of things. You know what I mean? So. That ability to actually try and work out outside of the prospectus and the presentation whether this is a good business or not, um, that's challenging where you want to try and do as much work as possible. Um, so we'll always try and, and take the meeting and understand and there's plenty that you know, you'll, you'll continue to follow and watch and then you may enter at a later point. Um, but I, I'd say what we, going back to that long-term fundamental approach, um, we are not someone that's going to take 70% of the IPOs and you know, again, a lot can change in a short time. So things that looked like a, a lay down was there, we're going to be a great stag on the first day, that can change very quickly and it's, you know, you're buying a business at the end of the day. You know, so has that business got great fundamentals to, to kind of deliver? Um, so yeah, that's how I would describe our approach. Very, very good. Thank you, Joel, so much for again for your time today. It's been uh, fantastic to to get you in here and to uh, for you to share your experience and views and uh, investment instincts with our uh, audience. Uh, so thanks very much uh, for that, Joel. No, look again. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for everyone who um, and dialed in. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. And uh, with that, we'll sign off. Uh, enjoy the rest of your Friday. Keep well, and we'll chat very soon. Thanks. Bye.